Hello, and welcome to the ZMM podcast. My name is Hokyu, and today we're offering some further recordings from the Buddhist Poetry Festival, which took place July 5th to 8th, 2018, at Zen Mountain Monastery. A number of wonderful writers shared their poems and led workshops during the festival, including Jane Hirschfield, Margaret Gibson, and Chase Twitchell. David Hinton kicked off the event with a reading of his original work and a sampling of his many classical Chinese translations. He was joined on stage by Achang Jusan Chen, a ZMM Sangha member who read the original Chinese versions before and after Hinton read his translations. You can find a video of the reading on our website. Just go to zmm.org media, where you can also search for other delights from the festival among dozens of Dharma talks by teachers and senior students at the monastery and the Zen Center of New York City. Following the reading, I sat down with David Hinton for a live conversation, which included the festival audience. I hope you enjoy. Thank you. Um, let's start with the new book. Um, it seems like, in, it's always seemed to me in your translations as though you're, you're, you're going as deeply into them as possible, and as I said, earlier is going deeply into the mind of the, the writer as much as possible and um, and with this it seems as though you kind of like fell through the, the mirror or something mm. and, um, and you're kind of <laughs> really looking from the inside out and saying okay you old masters <laughs> let's see let's see what this is like to um, and of course you're doing that with the translations too because I imagine it's their experience but you're also as you write about in um, in Hunger Mountain, especially, you're you're saying, "How can I make this my experience?" In order to understand what the original writer is saying. Mm-hmm. Um, so, first, when did when did these poems start, and um, and also, how did you find yourself in the desert? Right. Um, yeah, because Hunger Mountain is about a mountain in Vermont, which is where I've lived for thirty years. Uh, not very deserty. Um, no, I, but I grew up in, in Utah, so essentially the Southwest Desert, and and you know that whole thing about mind as a mirror, and f- uh, somehow it was always true for me. So I was feel like I was totally shaped by the desert, and I'm kind of out of place even right even now here. Um, and so okay, so I grew up there, and then. Um, you know, I go back when I can, and and then I mean, it's I went to there's this writers thing in Marfa, Texas, in the very high open western desert of Texas, and I, so I was there for a month and with and I was actually there to try to finish Hunger Mountain, but these poems kept like pushing at me, so finally I said I'm not okay, all right. And it was just this whole new voice that just, and it was because of the, de- and it was totally because of the landscape there, which is, if you don't know it, it's just this, Donald Judd moved there, the minimalist sculptor, and turned it into an art center because it's just this gorgeous, flat landscape. Uh, so that just like opened up, I don't know, a whole history of something in my mind. So that's where they started, and they've just been coming ever since. Uh, so I actually have, I think, another book or two, two, maybe two more books of these that will slowly appear. But is that enough of an answer? Yeah, I, just, I, I think I just sat down and I said, to come back to part of your question, these poems kept coming and at some point 
I tended to I tended to think poems need to be really uh, uh, big, highly crafted. So I mean, the f my first book was this big map poem. Pretty different way of making a poem. And I was sort of writing these, and then at some point I just said, okay, well, you know, I've been doing these, I've been living in this world for 30 years, these this ancient Chinese, the minds of all these poets and Laozi and Zhuangzi and all these people. Well, let's just see what I know if I just sit here and whatever, whatever happens. Turned out I knew a little something. I don't know how much, but so it was kind of liberating to just say, okay, whatever, whatever happens. I also swore I was going to make it as, the poems as simple, as simple, simple, simple as I could. That was the other thing I realized I needed to do. Well, I like how it does feel like it's, um, it's of a piece. It fits very nicely in a sense with many of the old masters that you're translating, but it also is a modern man's perspective. And whereas they're often making declarations of insight, you're, um, you're infusing or kind of interspersing these moments of like, what the hell am I doing? Like, how do you do this? <laughs> you know, or like these old masters are saying this, really? Mm -hmm. and, but then you, you know, you kind of come around and find your feet again. And, mm -hmm. Yeah, there's something about uh, not knowing that works well for these. Uh, because, because, yeah, because not knowing leads you someplace else, someplace past. And that's what I hope a lot of these poems do. Um, yeah. And so you, you grew up in Utah and uh, went and studied at Cornell. How did you uh, get interested first in Chinese culture and what was that? What was that process like from first getting interested and then finding <laughs> yourself so immersed that it led to a Yeah, I don't, I, I, I early on was a, fell in love with Taoism uh, and, and Zen. And then I started writing poetry at some point. And then I came to Chinese poetry through modern American poetry like Snyder and people who, who, for whom you know ancient China sort of shapes the way they write, um, and so then I'm writing poetry, and then it's a long story. But then I realized what I could do with ancient Chinese poetry that nobody was doing, uh, and so then I studied Chinese and started doing that, and that was like a long sort of apprenticeship detour, and then finally come back came back around to writing prose and and poetry. Um, so I came to it all from, through poetry. And then, as I said earlier, Chinese poetry and then Chinese philosophy and then eventually Chan, uh, seeing Chan again from inside the Chinese world. Um, you write in existence, to translate a Chinese poem into English is to fundamentally misinterpret it. <laughs> um, it reminds me of, you know, the Tibetologist uh, Donald Lopez, who, who translates a lot of ancient Tibetan, has said that as a, as a translator, he's working in his milieu, you wake up every day and wonder, okay, what am I going to mess up today? Mm -hmm. And um, I, I mean, I appreciate the humility, but um, yeah. you know, what, what you render is pretty gorgeous, but I'm wondering, um, what is your kind of gold standard, and like at what point do you kind of look back and 
we do yearbook book back and, and um, you know, at the end of, of working on something, I say, like, okay, I think I, I know about this. Oh. Yeah, I don't, I mean, I don't know. I just, it's just, it's really, I can't think of anything else to do. It's the same if I write, writing a poem or prose. It's just that I write and write and write until I can't think of it, until nothing else happens. And then it's, you know, then it's done. Um, like you've asked every, like every question you can ask. Yeah, I can't, like as I'm reading, because I'm just, it's, a, it's essentially fierce self-criticism. It's like as you're revising, it's just, oh, that's wrong, that's wrong, or that leads me someplace, and that leads me someplace. So then I have to take, bring in all the loose threads. And once I can read something and nothing, I find nothing wrong, and I find it, nothing takes me somewhere else that needs to be explained, mm -hmm. then it's probably done. Do you something look at other like translations? Or? Yeah, I, 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 I do. I don't usually, you know, I might, I don't usually get much out of them. They're not usually useful. But I do just because I'm willing to plunder anything. I'm not, I'm not. I'm not. But to go back to like we are the beginning of that question. Yeah, translating is uh, is a hopeless compromise, and you just have to be comfortable with failure because it's all you can do is fail as best you can. So that I guess I'm nothing if not determined. So I just pound away at failure until I failed the least amount possible. And, uh, but that, so but that, like meditation. <laughs> well, it is a kind of meditation, yeah. I, I think. I, I, I just sit there inhabiting the spaces between the words because Chinese has so much open space in the language, and that's part of what makes translating interesting. I have to sort of re fill in all the tissue. But um, it's also to live in, in the interstices of language, in a sense. Uh, um, anyway, I write about that, but that's complicated. And then, and then the thing you said about that quote is not about, um, oh, to, to translate Chinese is to fundamentally misinterpret. Yeah, that's not just about, well, the language is different. That was about. Uh, and translation is hard. That was a big philosophical thing about how Chinese is works. I can't really talk about. It. I, I can't. I, Chinese is my is not is non mimetic. It's not a language that's. We assume language is um, mimetic, and that is it. It's this separate kind of quasi metaphysical realm, quasi transcendental realm, looking out on the world and naming it talking about it. So that's part of what structures us with this like inner spirit illusion is the fact that we assume language is doing that. Uh, and you can see it, I mean from the beginning, you know, Adam and God are talking to each other. So in the Western tradition, language somehow precedes the world, really. It's a totally transcendental realm. Well, in, in Chinese and in primal languages, that's not true. And actually in desert, I'm trying to get at that. Like in that one, I'm trying to operate that way. Like in that, oh, I won't be able to find it. Anyway, um, in Chinese, they don't, they, don't, they, they don't operate that way. That is, the world of language is just as much a part of the ongoing process of change as anything else. Um, and part of a very obvious way that works is that 
Chinese is fundamentally pictographic. That is, it's all pictures. A tree looks like a tree. Um, so, I mean, that's like a half simple version. Tree. Yeah, in English, we think that, in the Western languages, we think that a, a word refers to a thing because it points at it from this transcendental realm. But in ancient Chinese, and I think in prim probably in primal cultures, but certainly in ancient Chinese, it's, it's, this is a whole different cosmology. It's, it's because those two things, the word and the thing, like tree, the, the thing that looks like a tree and the tree, share a source because their cosmology is this always generating moment. So those two things share a source. And when you say tree, the word tree, the tree in a sense separates out from the rest of the tissue of reality. The tissue of reality is one tissue until we start naming it. And you know, the tree is there, but it's not there as a distinct thing, separate from the tissue of everything. But so at the moment that you name the tree, in a sense, the tree itself comes into existence. They both spring into existence at the moment. So especially in a poem, each word is that exists that generative moment happening, happening, happening. And that's why in a Chinese poem, the language is stripped down, stripped down, stripped down. So it's very few words with lots of empty space between them. So each one is almost this event, this generative event. That's all right. So I get ex excited about that, but it's like hard to get into it quickly from, you know, uh, on the side. Anyway. Uh, questions from the audience. <laughs> um, <laughs> there you go. What happened? Uh, no, no, we just have a, a, um, a, poet, a poetry teacher right in the middle here who needs a microphone. So oh. can hear oh, I hear this. So you were talking about how Chinese is pictographic, and um, and I could hear the prosody in Chang's reading. I mean, I've never studied Chinese, but mm -hmm. I did study the history of English. Mm -hmm. And it's changed tremendously since the time of Beowulf, and, mm -hmm. you know, we started reciting Beowulf, very, nobody would really understand what we were saying. And the trace of the sound, like we, had, we use an alphabet, so we more or less know what Beowulf sounded like hundreds of years ago. Um, vowels are a little mysterious or whatever. So right. I'm just curious, and I picked, I've actually wondered this a lot, um, how, how do we know what Chinese sounded like 400, or in 400. Yeah, yeah. Um, right, because what, what Ajung read is modern pronunciation. And um, their scholars have recon reconstructed it. I can't say how they did it. So there are, some, there are a few people who could read that poem some pretty close to what the ancient Chinese would have sounded like. It's much more guttural, has lots of GHK sort of things in it. Um, interesting thing is, as the pronunciation shifted over the centuries and millennia, it shifted consistently. So for the most part, rhymes stay intact. What rhymed then, even though they're different pronunciation, rhymes now. They would just be different sounds. So the vowels No, what I'm saying is, what, the whole shift from all the pronunciation shifts were consistent somehow, so that you end up with a poem which rhymed with what maybe K sounds at the end now rhymes with G sounds or something. Um, I think that's kind of interesting. 
I wanted to read that poem I was trying to find, talking about mimetic, or how Chinese thought language was not separate, not a transcendental realm. The desert, I read this, the desert sees itself through many brilliant eyes, whole histories of eyes, antelope eyes, hummingbird, fox, lizard, vulture. It knows itself so perfectly by now. I wonder why it keeps talking like this. Okay. Uh, in what form were these poems preserved? Um, we kind of know in, in Western culture it was very much a monastic and, and manuscript sort of tradition. But how were they, I guess, published and then preserved in their own times? Mm -hmm. Well, uh, not so, I mean, not so differently. They would have been uh, written down, hand, you know, hand copied. But by the time of some of those poems I read, they were printing. Like Bo Jui, the guy who said wine is as good as Chan, his book, there were printed editions of his book, I think in his lifetime, of his work. So they were printing, you know, way before us. They were printing in the, or like around 800, uh, maybe a touch after that. Um, but so they were, they were, I mean, yeah, so people would write them down. Some people like Bo Jui tried to actually write down the collected works and he very carefully put them in like three different monasteries. And wouldn't you know it, 10 years later, this emperor decided he was, this was the great purge of Buddhism in 845, and all three of the monasteries were burned down. <laughs> so, uh, so a lot of it is they were written down, they were like maybe copied in various collections, um, fragmentary collections for, of, of each poet, of a particular poet. And then people would keep editing them and try to collect them, all the versions that they could find and put a bigger collection together and then that one would get lost. So it was like lots of attrition and erosion. Whoops. Um, so all of the poets that I read today, most of their poems are probably lost. Uh, in fact, the drink, the first poet, only 125 poems survive. He probably wrote 10 times that many. No, Tao Chen. Han Shan, I mean, you know, well, Writing on trees. he wrote his down supposedly on trees and rocks, which, and remember that this is um, uh, water-soluble, just ash, ink, so they didn't last past the next rainstorm. So somehow those got collected, and so it's all very haphazard, and most of it was lost. Uh -huh. I've been enjoying your translations for several years. Thank you very much for bringing Chinese Thank poetry you. to us where we can enjoy it. I'm, I'm so impressed with the elegance of your translations, the way you use sound for emotional impact, and also the, clear, the clarity of the words. Uh, you're dealing with very complex subjects and another culture. So I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about how, what your process is when you receive the Chinese poem, how you convert it to English. Do you, do it, do you mm -hmm. write all, all the words in Chinese and then put them together? Or yeah. how, and how close are you to the actual Chinese? Mm -hmm. um, I try not to mystify things, so I don't, it's not like a, I don't meditate for three days and then translate. I just get up in the morning and 
slog upstairs and see what, see what maybe I can do. Um, uh, that clarity might come from the Chinese because Chinese is very clear. It doesn't have all the, the crappy little words we have, like articles and conjunctions and all that stuff. So I'm trying to, it helps me pare English down because it's always the model. Um, so yeah, I start, I start working. I just figure I'm going to have to keep going through it and through it and through it and through it because it's not like, a, there's never, you know, there's not really magic. You just, you just plot along until maybe a little magic somehow happens. Uh, and let's see, in terms of accuracy, so yeah, I'm, I don't, I'm, I try to keep very close to the original. I don't, I pretty much don't invent things. I move things around. I'm, 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 I, I start with the original. I'm first and foremost making a poem in English. So I'm willing to change a lot of stuff. Like if it's an adjective, it's okay with me if I turn it into a verb or a noun. Or I just need all the basic information that's in the original in mind. And, and, um, and I do things like, I also use the strengths of English, like line breaks. Sorry, which some people think is horrible because Chinese uh, all, are all in stopped lines. But I've run lines over all the time to, for, to use that enjambment for some effect, musical or, or meaning. Um, and uh, yeah, that, yeah. So I, so, so I sort of go, with the Chinese poem, and then it's my poem, and I push it as far as I can, and then, it, and then I go back to the Chinese, it's the Chinese poem, and ch sort of check in, and then it's my poem again, and then I work it as my poem, and I keep doing it until sort of both sides are happy. I'm happy and the, poet, the original poet's happy. Do we have time for one? Okay, there's one way in the back. One more way in the back, and there'll be time later for informal Question answers. Okay, thanks. Um, thanks so much for that reading. It was really beautiful. Thanks. Um, I'm curious, in general, um, how fluent do you think a poet needs to be in the um, source language to do a, um, a meaningful and good translation? Oh, good question. Because in Chinese, there's a long, famous tradition of, which I'll talk a little bit about maybe tomorrow, of translating Chinese, poets translating Chinese who can't read Chinese. Um, uh, Ezra Pound uh, and Rexroth, the most famous examples. Um, how important? Well, I mean, I, I've gotten to the point that I, I, I probably will sound dogmatic, but yeah, I think you pretty much have to. I mean, for me, I actually tried, decided when I, when I discovered what I could do with Chinese, I knew Pound and, Sni and Rexroth and a lot of other people, I knew, you could, I, could, I knew I could do a lot of what I wanted to do using stuff in English. Um, and I said, do I want to do that or do I want to go to all the trouble to learn Chinese? And I went to the trouble. Uh, and it's actually, for me, it's done a lot more. I mean, yeah, okay, I see the Chinese way, way deeper than it's possible using other English sources or using... Uh, uh, you know, somebody, an informant or whatever you want to call them, somebody who knows Chinese, so it's like a two-person process. Or Google Translate. 
or Google Translate, yeah. <laughs> uh, but, um, but for me, it's, it's been more than that because I've, I've started writing, pro, uh, I've written quite a lot uh, over the last five years in uh, books of essays um, about the nature of Chinese and how this a whole, it, it, it embodies this whole different cosmology and ontology. I never could have seen that if I had, didn't know the Chinese and really that living in, and, and for me as a poet, living inside the minds of those people, which, which is what I have to do. And you don't have to do that if you're just, if you're using a, somebody, an intermediary to get to it. Um, I, think, I think it's easier probably for Western languages because there isn't this really fundamental difference in how the language works. But for Chinese, on the one hand, it looks easier because it's very imagistic, and you can just and and you know every every line is five graphs long or seven graphs long, and it's easy to get the English equivalents, and then it's easy to make it into uh, a kind of imagistic poem. But you're and that's you know that's good enough, but you're sort of missing all the depths and all the stuff that's in the Chinese. Yeah. Okay. Um, um, so we're going to, actually, one more thing um, before where, where I are the bathrooms? The bathrooms yeah. uh, um, I, I wanted to ask you if you, I was recently rereading Su Tung Po and uh, came across um, Midsummer Festival going up as high as the mountain, uh, as high as the monastery. Um, what is that? 232 in Mountain Home. Midsummer Festival wandering up as far as the monastery. I was hoping you could read it since I felt like it's appropriate for Oh, okay. This is Sudong, yeah, Sudong Po, who was, by the way, uh, tr you know, got transmission, a Song Dynasty poet. So he was very serious Chan person, also one of the very greatest of all Chinese calligraphers um, and poets, you know, qu quite an amazing character. Uh, Midsummer Festival, wandering up as far as the monastery. I don't remember this at all. <laughs> I have such a horrible memory. I was going wherever I happened to go, giving myself over to whatever I met, when incense drew my recluse steps to mats spread open and pure, tea poured. Light rain delight delayed my return. Quiet mystery outside windows lovelier still. Bowl dome summits blocking out sun. Grasses and trees turned shadowy green. Climbing quickly to the highest shrine, I gazed out across whole Buddha realms. City walls radiant beneath helmet peak and cloudy skies adrift in tremor lake. Such joy in all this depth and clarity, such freedom in wide open mountains. My recluse search wasn't over when dusk cook smoke rose above distant villages. Back home now, this day held in mind shines bright and clear. I can't sleep, and those monks are sitting awake too sharing a lamp's light in Chan's stillness. Mm. Yes. Um, 
You can learn more about David Hinton and the festival by visiting BuddhistPoetryFestival.org. And you can hear more of our talks, interviews, and event recordings at ZMM.org or by subscribing to our podcast. Thanks for listening.